Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by our Deputy Political Editor Sam Coates making his debut, columnist Danny Finkelstein and our Assistant Editor Anne Ashworth. This week David Cameron pledged full employment for the 2015 Tory manifesto but this sets the Tories no target date making the pledge effectively unbreakable. Ed Miliband meanwhile has promised to cut the deficit every year but when asked how he's going to do it he merely says it'll be fairer in a fairer way than the Tories meaning successes in the eye of the beholder. It looks like the experience of the Lib Dems over tuition fees coupled with the way that parties seem to want to make more and more policies coalition proof is turning manifesto pledges into something a bit more mushy bland and unbreakable. Does this matter? Is it a bad thing and should we criticise them for it? The response of the Muslim Council of Britain to the letter from Eric Pickles is deeply disappointing. It could not have been more tactfully worded and to suggest that there are no intellectual or organisational challenges with which mosques can help is simply absurd. There has been an astounding response to national savings and investments, pensioner bonds. More than £1 billion worth of these high-rate bonds have been sold, despite huge website problems. The scheme is a way to appeal to grey voters who have endured years of paltry deposit account returns. Does the government now have a bribe in store for the young, who, if they are not home buyers, have had no benefit from record low interest rates and cannot afford to make provision for their old age. So those are our three topics for today. And uh, Sam, welcome to the podcast. It's Hello. great to have you on here. I don't Thank know you. how you've managed to escape <coughs> this duty for so long, but uh, 
You are worried that the pledges that the political party leaders are making to us are meaningless. Well, I, I, it's something I've noticed. Look, this is a topic I've picked on today out of broadly out of frustration after David Cameron announced the latest of his uh, manifesto pledges yesterday. That was on and Monday, so, yes. Uh, so, uh, so on Monday he said that the Tories would aim for full employment. Um, now it was a slightly unusual definition of full employment, which was simply that Britain would have the highest employment amongst the, G, uh, amongst the G7. They're not going to target that in the next parliament, they're not going to give us a date by which they do it, but that nevertheless was the aspiration. And, and, and I, think, I think we can guess what David Cameron's trying to do. He wants us to Fearful employment, associate the Conservatives with this goal, very different from what they were doing in the 1980s. But when you kind of open the bonnet and look beneath it, there's just a slight lack of detail, anything that actually ties them to doing anything differently above and beyond what they were going to do anyway. This isn't a, a, a point solely directed at, uh, a, a, at David Cameron, though. I mean, if you look at the kind of lack of specificity on Labour's deficit reduction plans. They simply say they're going to do it more fairly uh, than uh, than the Conservatives would, which I, I think is frankly simply in a, a judgment that will be made in the eye of the beholder. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I've noticed this. I'm not necessarily saying I'm criticising it for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm not sure how many members of the public notice the vast majority of, of, of manifesto pledges, perhaps until they're broken. Why worry too much about creating something that you don't know is going to work and giving your opponents a stick to beat yourself, uh, 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 to, to, for them to beat you with, if, if you're not quite sure it's, it's going to work? Surely better to give a sense of where you're coming from. That, that may be completely legitimate. And secondly, I think that even the, we, we think about the way that manifesto pledges have evolved, particularly in terms of that totemic student tuition fee planned by the Liberal Democrats um, that they were forced to break. But there have been Tory examples where being over-specific has been dangerous in the past. I'm thinking particularly the net migration pledge on, on immigration or even on the deficit where they, uh, the Conservatives in 2010 said that they would safeguard the AAA rating and eliminate the bulk of the deficit uh, in this parliament. Neither possible. Um, so why not move to a sign- more sort of signalling, showing your instinct, showing you where you would come from in a future government rather than um, uh, uh, meaningless and perhaps unachievable goals that the public will um, uh, criticise for you for not, for not holding up to. What do you think, Anne, as a, as a voter? Do you want our politicians to make something more specific that we can hold them to account for? Or do you think this is being more realistic to just give us a sort of a mood music of the type of direction they'll take the country in? There's been a weird shift of views on this. We're in a week when somebody a parent whose child did not attend a birthday party has received an invoice for how much the attendance at that birthday party would have cost. And we are extremely conscious of our consumer rights, extremely keen to implement them. Meanwhile, we seem to have become almost more forgiving politicians' pledges and that they might be and that they will be broken. I don't know if voters have any expectation of what is promised at the time of election and and the run-up to election ever actually being fulfilled. I think we're just a much more cynical society and we tend to pursue smaller issues that we can resolve and assume that politicians, it's just more cant and... Is that, is that really true, though? Because Nick Clegg really has been punished for breaking his tuition fees pledge, hasn't he? Maybe, are we just sort of hypocritical? We say we don't expect politicians to honour their promises, but when they do break them, we still punish them for it or or are we punishing Nick Clegg just for getting in bed with the Tories what what, what is do you think behind 
his I'd, unpopularity. I'd just love to know what my two colleagues here feel about the shift that has happened since the last election. We've seen an atomization of politics, the rise of smaller parties. And I wonder if we will even look and, uh, and ponder on the pledges made in the election in the way that we even did in 2010. I'd just love to know what these people closer to politics than me think about that. Well, Danny, I think you are known to be reasonably close to um, politics. Um, where, where, where do you stand on whether we should be expecting politicians to make promises that are actually bankable, that are measurable in some way? I personally prefer broad direction, mainly because I think it represents the reality of what politicians can achieve. That lots of things that politicians want to achieve, full employment or reducing migration to a certain percentage, are only up to a point in government's control. They can only achieve a reduction in the deficit, for example, if the rest of the European economy was uh, goes right. I, I, I knew this um, from direct experience. Uh, the Conservative Party, when I was the policy director, agreed to something called the tax guarantee and before the general election we begun to appreciate something I think should have been appreciated at the time it was adopted uh, that actually we couldn't control the percentage of GDP that was spent on tax because that would depend on growth of GDP as well as tax a fairly obvious point and therefore we abandoned the pledge before the general election and I think that some of the this understanding has become greater and Sam's right in thinking that the tuition fee pledge would have made a an impact on that Nick Clegg had no business making that, that pledge because he wasn't, wouldn't have been able to deliver it under any circumstances. He paid, I think, correctly, actually, a very large price for having made it so specifically. People do want you to deliver the pledges that you deliver if you make them specifically. You will pay a price for it. I think it's right uh, that you should. But I think it's re also correct before an election to make your pledges realistic. In other words, not to give unrealistic uh, specificity uh, behind things that you can't be specific about. But does that give us, though, enough differentiation between the political parties? Because well, everyone can talk about the fact they're in favour of full employment. What I want to know is I, a, either how are you going to achieve it, yes. or B, well, look, let, what does it mean? Let's take, for example, the, the gap between the two parties on the deficit. Uh, although uh, Labour hasn't been very clear what it would do, and, Labour has, and neither of the Conservatives, uh, it's pretty obvious that Labour will run a lot slower towards the deficit, therefore probably won't make surplus, is almost certain to make up more of the deficit through higher taxation. Those th that, that higher taxation will probably come from better off taxpayers. The Conservatives will end up cutting welfare more. All those things are completely obvious and central without them being absolutely specific. And that, I think, is correct. That's about as much information as they are able to convey. You can't convey any more information than that. The reason for making the full employment pledge uh, is that the Conservative Party will wishes to suggest, I think correctly, that the best one of the best things in its policy record has been the improvement in employment. It wishes to emphasise that and, by extrapolation, suggest that their policies will continue and produce those things. And it's nothing more than an attempt to, 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 to demonstrate their record by extrapolation. And Sam is correct to say uh, these are not specific pledges, but I am quite nervous about politicians making pledges that they don't keep and they have reason to believe they can't keep. I think it's dishonest, basically. Sam Kurtz. Um, what, what I think, if I may, Danny, your explanation of what you, how you see a, a policy pledge um, suggests is it's all about the worth of that pledge in the run-up to the election, the job, it, the function it does ahead of an election. Do you think that there is enough um, scrutiny of what 
politicians said in their manifestos the other side of an election. I mean, what we're not doing a lot of at the moment is going through what the Tories had in 2010, partly because they went into coalition, and measuring them against those goals. For instance, I'd be quite interested to see whether the net migration target, whether you thought that in retrospect that was a good idea, whether that's the kind of thing you should be putting in. We should be, we should judge the coalition and the Conservative Party against their failure to deliver well, on that. Well, there are two different points. I didn't think it was a particularly sensible pledge to offer, but it's correct, considering that it was offered, to judge the Conservative Party against having offered it. And indeed, the Conservative Party is paying quite a big price for people's perception, broad though it is, it's not attached specifically to that pledge, but broad though it is, that the Conservative Party has not delivered on immigration what people expected to deliver. And I think that's going to be, that'll be a big factor in the election result when it comes. And so it it should be really. The fact that people have that uh, desire and the fact that their policies will be scrutinised after the general election, which is undoubted, I mean, a newspaper like ours scrutinises correctly people's policies. You shouldn't extend that to one more point, which is that people follow very closely individual specific policy pledges. They're pretty much not really aware of exactly what they are. They're very sceptical about them anyway. They would have been sceptical before the general election. Lots of interest groups though, Danny. There are sort of specific, you know, if you make a commitment on farming or the tech sector or Europe or pensions, we're going to come on to pensioners a bit later, but there are certain sections of society that if a pledge is made, they will actually look at the detail very closely indeed. By the way, I'm not not against um, offering specific policies. Mm. That's different from saying, as a result of that, specific policy uh, you will get this specific outcome it's that which you can't control I I am actually not in favour of one of the reasons why I hesitate a little bit about committing myself even to lots of specific policies is not just because before the election they're difficult, uh, people don't follow them and therefore they're not really being held to account it's also because the opposition parties in particular have an extremely small policy staff. I don't really want the opposition parties to commit themselves to ill thought through policies that they They, do often. One of the problems with politicians to to, to, to to research is that they do what they just just a final question to you to you on this the other thing of course that's different this time is parties can make their pledges they can make their policies but all in the back of our mind we're thinking (coughs) well if you have to go into coalition are you going to trade this away do you believe this is this a red line do you do you want parties to be more upfront about what is non-negotiable in their manifestos this time the idea of an of Another few months of people saying, well, we might like to do this, but probably it won't, we won't be able to do it. It's not going to happen that way. I just retain my suspicion that people are just much more sceptical now about what is promised and what can be delivered. Mm. I think we have almost become a different people. There's a, there's a cynicism out there that I don't think I've ever perceived before among the British about the whole of politics. And we're going to have to put a link up to this story that you mentioned of this party um, organiser charging the person who didn't (coughs) turn up. I've missed that one, but uh, we will put that on the link on the times.co.uk slash comment central for those of you who are Times subscribers, where you can also subscribe to this podcast and also uh, read some of the background articles to the subjects that we've been talking about. And uh, one of those is the leader in Tuesday's Times, which refers to the Muslim Council of Britain's reaction to a letter from the Community Secretary, Eric Pickles. Now, Danny, you've chosen this topic for us. Eric Pickles wrote to the Muslim Council of Britain, in my opinion, quite reasonably, in quite um, mild, accommodating language, just urging them to do 
go that extra mile to tackle radicalism in in the UK and and they reacted explosively. Well I was really disappointed. Uh, There would be two reasons for reacting badly to this letter one of which would be if it had been less than tactfully phrased or made people feel as though uh, they were being picked upon. I really don't think that's a possible reading of this letter. If anyone actually reads the text rather than just the quotes, the context of it is clear. It couldn't have been more tactfully phrased so I I think we can eliminate that as a possible reason for uh, disagreeing with it. The other reason for disagreeing with it is if you believe that uh, British mosques have no intellectual or organisational contribution to make to the problem of fighting jihadism. That isn't as absurd as it sounds because you can argue, look, this is a, a feature of the internet. Although these people have latched onto Islam, they're not really Islamic. Uh, that, that would be the argument. But I'm afraid, or having stated the argument, because it's been made by others, I think it's a ridiculous argument in both senses. First of all, and most importantly, Islam clearly has an intellectual problem that it has to grapple with as regards extremism. There are mainstream interpretations of Islam which tend towards extremism. This may not be as big a problem in this country uh, where it sort of intermixes with uh, the rest of sort of Western liberal enlightenment, but it's certainly a problem in a lot of majority Muslim countries and has led to... And a lot of the imams now operating in the UK come from these uh, these countries. Secondly, um, although it may be the case that mosques are at full stretch doing what they can uh, it's never the uh, in terms of combating extremism within their communities clearly and i you know i speak as part of a religious community myself and i see the influence that uh, my uh, local synagogue has on the sort of ethical framework of my children uh, i can see that hey everyone i've been on the go recently phoenix kansas city chicago If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Clearly they have a, a role to play in terms of how uh, of how jihadism unfolds. Um, they may feel they're doing all they can, and I suppose that would drive part of their response to it. But part of their response, I'm afraid, is an attempt to distance themselves from something that they can't completely distance themselves from because this is being done in the name of the religion for which they are the distinguished representatives, even if they feel that it isn't really in that name. Anne or Sam, do either of you have sympathy with a Muslim council of Britain and how they have reacted to Eric Pickle's letter? Anne? My view would be here, does the, the Muslim council speak for all Muslims? I sense that this is a fractured community and... There would be Muslims out there saying, 
not in my name. Please don't say that in my name and others entirely agreeing. And I wonder in all the debate around these issues, whether we are actually hearing what a whole group of Muslims think and cannot articulate because they haven't got a body to articulate those views, to expound those views, and whether the, the Muslim council is the people we should necessarily be listening to in all these issues, or are they the only people that the media can go to? Am I right, Sam, in thinking the Muslim Council of Britain was partly created in the 1990s, uh, largely with Labour politicians working with some representatives of the Muslim community, because there wasn't this sort of body that represented British Muslims, and they tried to create something that would. And, of course, there's been many controversies since, with the Conservative Party at one stage, I think, saying it wasn't recognised the MCB because it thought it was too extreme. This problem that Anne identifies who speaks for British Muslims is is one we keep going back to again and again. I suppose what I think is disappointing about yesterday's reaction is it doesn't really take into account the kind of history of the, of, of the, MC, um, of the Muslim Council of Britain in the kind of wider British context. It was the Labour government, last Labour government, that actually severed ties with the MCB over its relationship uh, and its uh, views of a member of Hamas. And so it's in that context that they ought to know that people will look at them. You have to contrast the perfectly moderate tone of the Pickles letter with the extremely inflammatory response to the MCB. They said, are you really comparing us to the far right? I mean, I, I think it was that that um, elevated uh, temperatures uh, in, in this debate. But there is one question that, uh, that I've got. Interestingly, Lord Sachs, the former uh, chief rabbi, just sounded a note of sympathy um, with the wider Muslim community saying, you've got to understand in a letter like this, if you're saying this is a problem that you've got to deal with, you might get the reaction, but are you really saying that we can, we as a community can root out this this issue? You know, you should be offering more help yourself. Could, could there not have been a response from, and I get the impression Eric Pickles can be quite a divisive fi figure within it, it, himself. If it just been a letter from Lord Ahmed saying, uh, who was a co-signatory, largely saying the, so, the, the same thing, would that have really lowered the impact on behalf of the government D should that matter i don't know but um uh, but uh, th there is a sense in which some felt the the letter placed some blame as it were on the on the community in encouraged them to sort out sort out their own problem and then and in doing so created some sort of exceptionalism for that group and maybe that wasn't wise were there other ways that the government could have tackled it H has the government done it taken its eye off the ball because some people have noted we noted in uh, tuesday morning's main leader that money for example for the prevent strategy tackling radicalism in islamic communities has been cut everything across most of government of course has been cut but is there a sense in which after the terrible events of um 7th of July 2005 we, we you know we we've we, we've that time has passed and we've forgotten that actually this is a continuing problem it's it's oh. the government as much as the MCB has I, a responsibility you know, here I make it a principle never to criticize individual uh, spending cuts um, out of context simply because if you could you do that you'll end up criticizing all of them and we won't save any money on the deficit so I don't know how, whether they made the correct balance between different types of security strategy well what, what I do want to say is that you know I think obviously tact is very valuable and uh, community sensibilities are important and you don't want to alienate moderate Muslims and push them into the arms of more extreme uh, Muslims. All those things are true. But there does come a point where you're no longer able to tell the truth uh, if you are so tactful that you um, uh, do everything you possibly can to avoid any response. Uh, this response basically suggested that mosques have no, have no role to play and that to point out that, and to suggest that they do is effectively to victimise the uh, Muslim community 
communities and there is no response to that but to very firmly rebut that suggestion and to say that that doesn't uh, rise up to the level of events there is an international crisis that is partly caused by doctrinal issues inside Islam there's an international crisis that's partly caused by organizational issues inside Islam the British Muslims are part of the international uh, Islamic religion. They therefore clearly have a role to play in this. That does not mean to say that every individual Muslim is responsible for every other individual Muslim, but it does mean to say that organisationally uh, and intellectually, uh, Islam has to has to deal with these things. And if you become so tactful that you can't say that, you're then not engaged in the real discussion about what uh, what's really going on in the world because you're pussyfooting about. And I, you know, I. I'm the last person to want to say something that offends anybody's religious sensibilities because I have my own and I don't want them to be offended and I'm the last person to victimise an ethnic minority because I belong to an ethnic minority and again I don't want that to be victimised so I'm very sensitive about it but we do at least have to have a conversation in which we can spit out the sentence without and have somebody reply to it engaging with the issue rather than engaging with our right to raise it in the first place Some people like to take offence and I think Perhaps people at the MCB. But it gives you power if, you, if you're the victimised. Yeah, yeah, and our third topic. You've raised the NSI pensioner bonds. There's been lots of stories in the uh, newspapers this week of people not being able to get through jammed phone lines in order to buy these bonds. But rather than it being a story of um, failure because of that, it's really an extraordinary success, isn't it, for the NSI that pensioners are pouring into wanting to buy these these bonds. It's been an extraordinary success, and I'm very pleased that savers who've had some really hard years of receiving really stingy returns are finally getting a decent rate. Uh, give, for those who are ignorant of this, give an idea of the rates that people well, are getting. You can earn as the three, there's one year and three year bonds. They're many times what you can receive on a deposit account. It's a fixed rate, okay, it doesn't offer a monthly income, but it is an extraordinary offer, as, as is seen by the demand for these bonds and also by the, by the need to recruit another 100 people to man the phone lines and keep the website running. However, we always listen to our readers, and many of the readers who phoned to say, look, I can't get through, what can I do, the website isn't working, confessing at the same time to a certain guilt about the generosity of this offer and seeing it very clearly as a bribe to them as grey voters. And some of them have said, look, you know, I'd like there to be a decent account for 20-somethings to save for a deposit on a house. And as far as I'm concerned, this is this is a really a broader issue. In April, we're going to see some of the biggest reforms ever to pensions. It's a whole revolution in how people can take their pension, how they can invest it. In the massive debate around that, there's no nobody's talking about the 20, 30, 40 somethings who are going towards a penurious old age because they aren't saving enough. And it's as if this, there's a group that we have forgotten about, the people who've actually had no benefit from record low interest rates have been a, a magnificent thing for home buyers. But if you're renting, you're a 20-something, you haven't got a, a grandfather or a grandmother who's investing in pensioner bonds who will be able to give you some money, you could you have every excuse for feeling really rather hard done by. Mm. 
How many instruments are there of this kind which are just exclusively targeted at pensioners? Very, very few. So this is an innovation. Is it something that exists in other parts of the world? No, this is a really, this is an extraordinary thing outlined in the budget of a year ago. We've been waiting for it and there are 10 million pounds worth of bonds on offer. 10 billion? Yeah, 10 billion. There could be, that could be exhausted by as early as the 1st of February, even though they're supposed to be available Until for months. April, and yeah. such is the demand for a decent return amongst that age group, an absolutely warranted and justified demand, so far as I'm concerned. But, however, there is this group whom, you know, I think we should be showing just some more concern for. Mm. And I speak as a parent of a 20-something myself. Is, the, is this, uh, uh, Sam Coates, uh, an election bribe? Is this something that um, is being targeted at the grey vote? We know that older voters vote uh, in twice as large numbers, as twice as intensively as young people. Yes, I mean, you just have to look at the figures. 44% of 18 to 24-year-olds voted in 2010, um, 76% of um, people over 65. Just on this specific policy, I've never quite known why age discrimination rules don't kick in, um, because effectively there is a ban on people below a certain age <laughs> buying that. I don't understand why that doesn't trigger has, uh, has discrimination rules. That? Well, I'm going out now to ask one of my team to look into it, actually. <laughs> because I don't understand why that's not discrimination against people like me. And I'm not saying I have any money and I should say I don't. But if I did, I'd quite like to have some of this, um, so, some of this stuff. And I, I thought that, was, um, that would be, uh, that would be a, a, against the rules. So quite how they got around that. But of, of course, the wider context is this um, intergenerational divide. Uh, those with property versus those with not. Those with savings versus those with not. And it does really all come down, I, I suspect, as you were, as you were saying, to housing being the being the big divide those who bought property before 07 and were able to take adv advantage of sustained low interest rates or those that that those that didn't and um and and, and whilst under certain types of economy you would just see uh, grandparents handing on the benefits to mm. children both with um, aggressive and penal inheritance tax laws and with um, uh, uh, certain uh, large landlords really sucking up the benefit from low interest rates um, offering flats for, for rent rather than rather than people owning homes in increasing numbers I think that um, I, I think there might well be a generation stuck off the off 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 the ladder mm. um, and quite whether we can build enough houses in the next 10 years uh, I, I'm not sure. We've just been speaking about disaffection amongst Muslim youths and what a terrible things it leads them to. But that's only an extreme, an extraordinarily extreme form of the fed up feeling amongst many people in their 20s and 30s who do not see themselves being able to have the things that they see as almost as a rite of passage, mm. home ownership, a decent job, a decent staff job with benefits, the things their fathers had at the same age. Yeah. We, keep, we keep coming back to this issue, um, Danny. I, I wrote a piece in last week's Times arguing for compulsory voting, something I'm not comfortable with, but I'm actually more uncomfortable with the numbers that Sam just shared, the idea that 44% of 18-year-olds vote and 70% of older people vote, and that's becoming a kind of gerontocracy where policy is completely skewed towards older voters. 
How do we change this? Well, I, I thought it was a compelling piece, although not actually, fun enough, not in the end, quite compelling enough for me to completely agree <laughs> with it. Because no, because I think ultimately you end, you end up you end up having to make a decision in principle about whether you think it's right or not. Although I did, I thought it was it was a very strong argument. It made me pause about it. Um, but I, I think in the end, if people don't want to vote, that's up to them. But uh, I, I thought you made some good arguments the other way. The, the truth is, we nobody can bribe anybody really with much of anything because um, we're borrowing a huge amount of money each year and we have to reduce the deficit my own part of my own solution to the intergenerational problem is that we've got to stop borrowing money that young people are going to have to pay back in tax it's mm. one of my primary motivations david willett's uh, book in his brilliant book the pinch lays the whole of this argument out and of and in the last five years that hasn't really motivated conservative policy because because of these electoral um, realities they've got it's gone the other way now let, let me give you an example of this the, the the policy on tv licenses which david cameron um, and uh, heating which david cameron uh, promised at the last general election i i am totally against those promises i don't think they should be made the winter fuel um, allowance exactly. or the, the pension of perks that they correct. get regardless of their wealth yep. correct i'm i'm not in favor of those um but if I was David Cameron, would I reverse them? No, not just and not just because of the promise. I'd probably make the promise again because uh, very strongly uh, politically motivated people to motivate you to vote would feel very very angry about it. And so you know, political realities are what they are. And if people vote, and that's why you need compulsory voting to change these well, you political don't, realities. No, because, because until you have something that shocks the system, you're going to have politicians well, serving special interests rather than all of the electorate. Well, but uh, people, ha everyone has an equal right to vote and uh, it's up to people to decide how they wish to um, how they wish to deploy that right. Uh, that's the only difference between us. But you're not, you're not wrong to think that it's a factor. However, even if it were the case that young people were to vote in equal numbers to old people, we shouldn't get the idea that anybody's able to bribe anybody with anything because we can only spend the money that we earn uh, and um, we're already spending more than we earn and therefore we've got to do something about that before anybody can bribe anybody with anything uh, so it's possible to do some small things like this but we can't um, the, the, the problem is more severe than we're uh, allowing for well this is a subject we've come back to many times on the podcast and undoubtedly we'll return to again but for this week we've run out of time Anne Ashworth Danny Finkelstein Sam Coates thank you very much indeed we're back next week with a special edition of the podcast we have Phil Aldrich our economics editor and Richard Fletcher our business editor and another surprise guest to review the Davos summit and we'll be looking at the world economy where's it going what's the impact of the oil prices are the worst days over so do join us again next week thank you for listening thank you to Dave McGuire my producer goodbye thank you for downloading to discover more head to thetimes.co.uk